0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. I'm reading from the ESV, verse 1 of John, chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews... And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed." But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God.
1: The passage that we have read together this morning is a very important one, because it raises the issue of theodicy. Theodicy. Why does a God who is good allow suffering? Very important question. People all over the world have asked this in all generations. Why, is, if God is a good God, does he permit suffering in the world? The entire world is riddled with ugly things, horrible things like cancer, and diabetes, and Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's, and eye disease, and lung disease, and heart disease. The list can go on and on and on. All kinds of suffering and even death. And we know that God is all-powerful. We know that he's omnipotent. We know that there's nothing that God cannot do, and so why, if God is all-powerful, are only a few healed? Why are most people not healed? I want to look at the text under four headings. The reality of the setting, the revelation that Jesus is sovereign God, the reason why Jesus does signs or miracles, John calls them signs, what is the reason that Jesus does them, there are two reasons and the reminder of what the stakes really are. And what I mean by that when I say the reality of the setting is what is the setting in which this miracle took place? Nothing that God does is ever random. There's a little word in the Afrikaans which cannot really be translated to English. there's no equivalent of which I know. It's the word soma. God doesn't do anything soma. Everything Jesus does is calculated. It's intentional. It has an exact purpose behind it. And so with that in mind, there are two important things to see before the miracle takes place in the setting. The first is that Jesus is back in Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jesus is always intentional. Jesus doesn't do random visits. The reason he went into Samaria, we read about it in chapter 4. Greg was preaching about this for the, on, uh, on the last two weeks, chapter 4. The reason he went there is because he knew there was a well there, and he knew that in the middle of the day, when it was very hot, a woman would come to draw water because of the shady circumstances, the shady lady you called her, and he knew she would come there. He knew her situation. And so he went there at the exact time that he knew she would come there. And friends, there are Samaritans in heaven because Jesus went to Samaria. And John says in chapter 4, verse 29, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And verse 41 says, many more believed. Because of his word. And so this was not a random visit. Jesus didn't kind of happen soma to find himself in Samaria. No, he went there because there was specific intention about it. These Samaritans, he needs to reach them. The same thing is true about his visit to Cana after he had been to Samaria. Also not a random visit. He goes to Cana because he knows there is a politician In Capernaum, it's about 40 k's north of Cana, and he has a son who is desperately ill, and if he's not healed, he's going to die. And Jesus goes to Cana, and he knows the official will hear about him, and he will come and he will make the trip, and he will ask Jesus to heal his son. And chapter 4 and verse 53 says, he believed, that's the official, he believed and all his household not just his son and his daughters, but everybody, his servants, his soldiers, his footmen, his driver, the guy who uses his cell phone for him, everyone, everyone in that whole entourage is saved. Why? Because Jesus specifically went to Canaan. So that's the first thing. Jesus is back in Jerusalem. And verse 1 says, Jesus went up to Jerusalem just kind of matter of fact. We need to read the whole Bible like this, by the way. Nothing in the Bible is random. It's all there for specific reason. We've got to look at it and say, why is this there? There is reason for it. The second thing we see in the setting is Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. He knows the pool is there, he makes a point of it, and he goes there, and there are are hundreds and hundreds of people who have all kinds of diseases and disabilities, and they are waiting at this pool to be healed. Verse 3 says there was a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, a multitude. It's an important statement because when we come to verse 13, After Jesus has done the miracle, we see that Jesus withdrew into the crowd because there was a crowd. And we need to ask the question, why did he do that? The man didn't even know who had healed him. Jesus didn't tell him at the time. And so why did Jesus slip away into the crowd? It was not a random action. And then before we move on, I just need to point out that if you have an NIV or an ESV, then you do not have a verse 4 in your Bible. But there is a verse 4 in the King James Version. Verse 4 in the King James Version says, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then, first after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And you do not have that verse if you have an NIV or an ESV. And I just want to say that the reason why verse 4 has been omitted from the ESV and the NIV is not because there's been a conspiracy by the publishers. I read sometimes on Facebook that the publishers of these versions have joined the Satanists. And there are all kinds of verses that have been left out. And that's absolute ignorant nonsense. That's fake news. No, the reason why verse 4 has been left out is because we've got about 6,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts of the New Testament And trained specialists are able to compare them and to see which are the oldest, the very oldest, and the very best. And there is an abundance of evidence in these 5,800 manuscripts that the very oldest and the best manuscripts do not have a verse 4. And what it seems happened is that somewhere along the line, as it was being copied and copied and copied, and they took meticulous care in doing that, that it seems that a scribe somewhere put in a note in the margin, possibly to explain verse 7, which tells us about the movement in the water. But it should not be in the text. Over the years, it came to be absorbed as though part of the text. But it really shouldn't be there, even though it may be exactly what happened. It may have been an angel. Uh, We don't know. We were not there. It may have been an angel, but it seems that John did not not write verse 4. And so I don't want to make too much of a big deal about this and get into textual criticism, but it is important I just tell you that. The second thing that I want us to see in the text is that there's a revelation that Jesus is sovereign God. This is why John wrote this gospel. And he tells us right near the end in chapter 20 and verse 31, I write these things so that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you may believe in him and in believing in him, you might have life in his name. For some people, that truth, that revelation that Jesus Christ is God just goes right over their head. You might be saying, Mary had a little lamb. For others, it's the life-giving life of God. As that comes to them as a revelation, it's not about how intelligent you are. It's not about connecting dots. No, this is a spiritual miracle where God gives people a revelation that Jesus is the sovereign God. Some of you may have that revelation today, maybe even watching on YouTube somewhere in the world. And John tells us three things about Jesus to show us that he is sovereign God. I mean, this portion, Greg, would be a mini-sermon just in itself. John was obviously a well-trained Baptist pastor because he had three points. I have four points today. So the first thing he tells us is that Jesus has great knowledge Jesus has great knowledge. Verse 6 says, Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had been there a long time. What a stunning thing to tell us about Jesus, that he knew about the man, and that what his problem was, and that he had been there a long time without needing to be told. He knew. He'd been paralyzed for 38 years. He could not walk, may have spent his whole life at the pool hoping, maybe today, and Jesus knew about it. And John is writing this so that we may know that Jesus knows about us, and Jesus knows where we are, and Jesus knows what we are facing, and Jesus knows what we are going through. Listen to Psalm 139 from verse 2. I mean, this is just spectacular. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. That is spectacular. That Jesus knows when I step down off this platform or when I step back up. He knows. He knows before I even do it. You discern my thoughts from afar. He knows what I'm going to think before I think them. It's just stunning. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my way. Look at verse 4. This is amazing. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. Those of you who know Dorothy and me know that I'm the quiet one in the family and she's a talkative one. She's very verbal, right? Did I crack a joke there? It's just... Stunning to know that before a word leaves my lips, Jesus knows about that word. What amazing sovereign knowledge. And Jesus, and John is wanting to show us who Jesus is. Jesus knows everything. Why does he know everything? He knows everything because he lives outside of time. He lives in what theologians call the eternal now. and I don't want to go down that path. But everything is present tense for God. It's all happening now. And so he knows what we will do tomorrow. Jesus has great knowledge. The second thing about Jesus is great compassion. He didn't have to go to the pool. It's not as though he was walking along and stumbled upon it. Oh, my goodness, I wonder what this is. No, he knew the pool was there like he knew the well was there in Samaria. And he chose to go there, like he chose to go to the well. And in verse 5, when he asks the man, verse 6 rather, do you want to be healed? I mean, this, this is a stunning passage. Which paralytic, having been sick, having not been able to walk for 38 years, wants to be asked, do you want to be healed? If I could, I'd put my hand up. So I want to be healed. And he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, yes, I want to be healed more than anything else. I'd love to walk. What he says is tragic. He just explains the situation. He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, even while I am going, someone else gets in before I can. And this happens every time. Every time the water is stirred, whether by an angel or some other miraculous means, and someone can get in the pool and be healed, and this man is going, This is my day. And before he gets there, someone else is in. And this has been happening year after year after year. And it's absolutely tragic. And Jesus speaks, and he speaks healing to his body. Verse 8, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now, I want you to see that there's no indication in the passage that the man had faith in Jesus, and that's why Jesus healed him. Jesus is not a faith healer. Jesus healed the man as an act of sheer grace, by grace alone to the glory of God alone. It seems the only reason why Jesus healed the man was because of the compassion of Jesus, He was moved with compassion. At least nine times in the Gospels, we are told that Jesus was filled with compassion. He was filled with pity. And John wants us to know that Jesus, the same Jesus, the sovereign God Jesus, knows about us too. And he knows about our situation and he has compassion for us as well. And he's moved by the misery we experience. He doesn't always deal with it. But that's not because he's not compassionate. Jesus has great knowledge. Jesus has great compassion. Jesus has great power. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And the next verse says, verse 9, and at once. The man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And all you can say is, wow, at once, the power of Jesus Christ is sovereign. It is immediate. The man was healed on the spot. It is not a case of the man being healed and had stiff legs. And Jesus saying, walk, Well, well, my legs are stiff. Yeah, well, you know, it stands to reason. You've been there for 38 years, the muscles are not so good. Uh, Just just bend the knee. (coughs) Push, my boy, push. (coughs) Push more. (coughs) Say, Lord, this 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 is really painful. Let's try the other leg. Maybe you're gonna need a physio for a while. Maybe we'll put you in a wheelchair. No, no. At once. At once. And when Jesus speaks, bones must obey. They must. They must. And blood must obey. And tendons must obey. And ligaments must obey. And anything else in the human leg, you'll have to ask Mike and others what's in the human leg. I only know what's in a leg of lamb. I like what is in a leg of lamb. It must obey because he is the Lord. They must obey. Just like the storm on that night had to obey when Jesus muzzled it. And when Jesus quietened the storm, it's the word you would speak to a yapping dog and you say, be muzzled. You put the muzzle on. That's the word. Jesus was literally muzzling the storm. And it happened, it didn't sort of die down over two hours. It happened on the spot. One moment, the waves were wall high. Great for surfing, I should imagine. The other moment, great for fishing. And John is showing us who Jesus is. That Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. He began the whole book with that statement. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. In verse 17, Jesus claimed to be God. He said, my Father is working, and He means on the Sabbath. My Father, because the Jews said, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And He said, well, my Father is God, and He works on the Sabbath and I am also God, that's why I work on the Sabbath. That's why they wanted to kill him, because he was claiming to be God. And the official son in Capernaum, 40 kilometers away, when Jesus spoke the word, he was healed immediately, at once. They worked it out afterwards. You know what the timing happened? When Jesus spoke the word, that guy was healed. And folks, John is writing this so that we may read these things. And that we may also have the revelation that Jesus really is the Lord so that we would repent and that we would believe in Jesus and believing in him, we also would receive life in his name. How do you build a relationship with Jesus? Well, Jesus is the word. This book is the word about the word. My preaching is the word about the word about the word. Every time we're becoming one step further away. And God's plan for us is to read this word and encounter Jesus in the word. Encounter Jesus. You can only do that if It is a revelation. You don't do it by intelligence or by powers of deduction. No, you read the word, and somehow I don't understand how it happens. But God uses the written word to reveal that Jesus is God. He is God. And you're impacted by that. And you worship him. And your life is changed. It is shaped. And you walk out of that door different. Because you've met with the living God. As you read his word. That's why John is writing this so that we can meet Jesus. And even as we read the word and expound the word, we need to be saying, Jesus, please meet me today. Please encounter me. You did it for the woman at the well, and you did it for the official son, and you did it for this guy. Please do it to me. Please reveal yourself. Let these words become more than just words. Let them become life as I meet Jesus. The third thing is the reason why Jesus does miracles. Why does Jesus do signs? Obviously, he doesn't do them for random reasons. Well, verse 9 tells us that this miracle happened on a Sabbath. Oh, Come on. Who? Oh, no work is allowed on the Sabbath. Definitely no furniture removals allowed on the Sabbath. You are not supposed to walk unless you go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. You're not supposed definitely to be moving beds around the place. So, why did Jesus do the miracle on the Sabbath? Why didn't he just wait a day till Sunday, till the Sabbath is over, and not have the controversy? Why did he not do it a day earlier? That guy had been here for 38 years. What would waiting one more day really matter? No, the two reasons why he did it on the Sabbath is because, A, he knew it would be noticed. This was going to get out. This was going to be controversial. He had broken the Sabbath, he had broken the law, and he was going to be in trouble. But secondly, his identity would be revealed as the Son of God because only God can do something like this. He had to be God. And so he wanted his glory to shine. And so he chose the Sabbath intentionally for his glory to be shown. I am the son of God. You need to take me seriously. Verses 10 to 13. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath. I love this. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. The guy's just been healed. He's been a paralytic for 38 years. And they're worrying about him carrying a bed. Religious leaders. But he answered them in verse 11. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Like, we'd love to know. I think they knew. Verse 13. Now, the man who'd been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And the question is, why did Jesus do that? Here's the question of theodicy. Why doesn't Jesus heal everyone? He could have. He was there. He could have spoken the word. He, like when he said, let there be light. And there wasn't sort of a little spark here. And then another little spark there. And then another. No, no, no. It was all light immediately. And he could have simply spoken the word to everyone. No more invalids. No need for the water to be troubled because everyone's got healed. Why doesn't God heal everyone? Jesus heals the man and then he disappears into the crowd. The man did not know who had healed him. He could not find Jesus. Jesus wasn't there. I have no doubt that if Jesus had stayed at the pool, he would have had to have done a healing crusade. He would have had to. He would have had to heal everyone. But that's not the main reason why Jesus came into the world. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then in verse 14, having disappeared, it's Jesus who finds the man, not the man finding Jesus. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple, and he said to him, see, you are well. sin no more. So that nothing wrong may happen to you. Now we see the reason why Jesus healed the man in the first place. Now we see the reason why Jesus does any miracle. Verse 14 explains it. Jesus finds the man. He tells him what the real issue is. Repent from your sin. That's what you need to do. I think you said to the guy when you found him, I think the man would have said to him, hey, you're the guy who healed me. Yes. So who do you think I am? God. You got it. You got it. Only God can do this. You've got to be. Are you that Jesus? Yep. Now it's up to the imagination as to what would have happened then. Greg, won't you join me on on the platform just a moment? Is your leg okay to come up? Some people would react in different ways. Some people would go, Jesus. Others may be like Thomas, my Lord and my God, and bow down. Let's, let's imagine he's Jesus. He make, make a better one than me, right? Right? He make a better Jesus than me. Imagine I'm the man just being healed. You know what I think I would have done? Jesus thanks I would have just be overwhelmed maybe maybe speechless maybe I would have become the silent one in the home after all Jesus said you got it right now let me tell you why I did this my boy I've come to call you out of sin I've come to reveal to you. Here's the true reasons for every miracle. It's to reveal Jesus' true identity. It's to show Jesus as God. That's the reason for any miracle. It's to show Jesus is God. These faith healers that go around today, I'd like to see them at the Pool of Bethesda. Right? Even if you gave your best offering, this guy wasn't going to be healed. The first reason to show Jesus is God. The second reason is to call people out of sin so that they may repent, so that they may believe. The main thing that Jesus is doing in this age is not related to health, it's related to holiness. The main thing he's doing is not related to sickness. It's related to sin. That's why he said in verse 14, repent. Sin no more. Run from your sins. Stop sinning. I've healed your body because your soul needs healing. And then he warns him, if you go back to your sin, something worse will happen to you. What could be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? being eternally condemned. The worst thing that could happen is to lose your soul. And so at the end of the chapter, and that doesn't fall in the scope of this text, but I want to read verses 28 and verse 29. Jesus says, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, his voice, not Jesus' voice, the Father's voice, and come out. They will come out of the tombs. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And, and Jesus is saying to my boy, this is super serious. I've healed you to reveal who I am. I've healed you, to show you that I am God and now I'm calling you to repent and to turn from your sin and to believe in me and the life I've given you to live in that life from now and if you do that, then on the last day, when the Father calls everyone who's ever died out of the tombs, you will be one of those rising to life. But if you don't, you're going to be rising to everlasting judgment. And folks, this is what church is really all about. We're not into a reality show here. We're here to show reality. Every single one of us will one day be called out of the grave if we have died before Jesus comes, every one of us. And all those who have died, they will be given new bodies. And those who believed in Jesus will hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. You will enter into eternal life. And those who did not believe in him, they will also receive bodies, and they will be condemned, and they will hear the words, Depart from me, you wicked. I never knew you, into the everlasting lake of torment and fire. And which is it going to be? It's one or the other. And Jesus is saying to this guy, this is what this life is actually all about. It's to prepare for that day, the last day. Because we're going to stand before the King of Kings. Every one of us. And what is it going to be for us? I've got time to tell you a quick story. I have a friend who is a pastor. And he was going to be preaching in another church one day. There was always something about his wife. He couldn't put his finger on. One day he received an invitation to preach in another church. And he went and he got a mate of his to preach. When he came back... Pastors always want to know how it went while they were away. And so he said, so his wife got in first. She said, how was your service today, love? He said, it was great. God really gave me unction. She said, praise the Lord. So he said, how was our service today? She said, it was also great. He said, what happened? He said, well, what happened is I was converted today. He said, what are you telling me? She said, I realized today, as the word of God was being preached, That I've been the wife of a pastor all these years, and I've never been saved. I've heard both of them tell that testimony independently. He didn't, of course he was not angry, he was delighted. This is possible. It's possible for pastors to be unsaved. It's It's possible for elders, for deacons, for kids, ministry teachers, for youth leaders, for worship. It's possible to be a church member who's baptized and not be saved. I grew up in a home with parents who were baptized church members, and they were not saved. I know it's possible. I want to appeal to you today. This is why the Bible says we must examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. The fourth thing is a reminder of what the stakes really are. A reminder of what the stakes really are. The first one is this, is that when Jesus came the first time, he didn't reveal his full glory. John tells us in chapter 1 that he dwelt among us, says the ESV. The Greek word means tainted. There was like a veil between Jesus and us. So we couldn't see his glory. It wasn't the time for his full glory. And so if we had to line up Jesus with 10 other men, we would not immediately be able to say, which one is Jesus? wasn't obvious because it was hidden. And so every now and again, Jesus would do a miracle to show who he was. The turning of the water into wine. The woman at the well, the official son, this healing, the multiplication of loaves and fishes and so on. Why did he do that? To show who he is. He is God. He is the Lord of glory. So the main purpose of the first coming, the main purpose of the signs, is to show that he is God and to call us out of sin and into holiness. That's the main purpose of the miracles. And Luke tells us that in chapter 19 and verse 10, having examined as a historian all the stuff, he says the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which was lost. That's the reason he came. So in this age, it is true that some are healed, and we thank God for that. We know God still does miracles. But it's also true that even though Jesus had the power to heal everyone, he didn't. Most people who have disabilities and diseases, and I have a disease, we will have them the day we die. Most people, it's true. Until Jesus comes back, therefore, all of us will die of something. No one dies of nothing. The full healing of all of God's people is only going to happen when Jesus comes a second time. And so the first coming of Jesus and his ministry on earth, they point us to that day of glory when there'll be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more stooped backs, no more crooked spines. No more wheelchairs, no more diabetes, no more blind eyes, no more deaf ears. Lot of happy wives on that day. No more aches and pains. No more brilla and pillar. I'm at that stage. No more dying. It's gonna be glorious. But friends, he left us on this earth still groaning, didn't he? Romans chapter 8 says, the whole creation is groaning because of sin. In this age in which we live, healing is the exception. It's not the norm. It's not because we don't have enough faith. It's because that's his plan. Jesus left hundreds, hundreds of, of unhealed people at their pool. He told the one guy that he did heal that the main thing is to be holy. And so the main point is that until Jesus comes, we should meet him as broken people. We should receive his forgiveness and we should pursue holiness with all our might. There are four things I want to say as we close and as we draw this message to an end. Maybe they're practical applications. The first is this. they there is no doubt, there can be no doubt that God is still healing people today and that we should pray and we should ask him for healing. No doubt about that at all. Jesus is God. He knows everything. He is compassion, compassion. he has great power. And we should pray and we should ask him. We've been mandated to do that. There's no guarantee, of course, that he will heal. I've personally had the privilege of Praying for many people and seeing some of them healed on the spot. But I need to tell you that I've also seen people die. The first person I ever prayed for died. I always tell people who ask me to pray for them, you need to just know this, what my track record is. Just make sure you are ready. It could be one or the other. Maybe God heals you in some way or he removes you. Just be ready. It's the reality. What is death? It's ultimate healing for the Christian. Most people are not going to receive their healing in this life. Despite the promises of the prosperity preachers, even if you gave your best offering, the majority of us are not going to be healed in this life. Now, I want to say to you that he has compassion on you. He is sovereign. Over our body and over our soul, and the grace of God is there for us, and it's enough. That's the second thing. Third thing I want to say is to thank the medical professionals. And I don't want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, because you have devoted your entire life to help us as we struggle with the groanings of this life, I want to say that we appreciate you, we thank God for you, thank God for you that you're on mission with God, maybe you've never seen it like that before, but you are on mission with Jesus and you are the hands of Jesus to us, for some people the only compassion and the only counselor they will ever receive is from their doctor, And Greg, you've experienced as I've been in a hospital where I've gone to see someone as a pastor and they say, doctor, it's so nice that you've come. I'm not a doctor, but they're vulnerable. They're feeling needy. And they doctor, they are looking to for help. I want to say thank you to the medical professionals, whatever your profession among us today, or listening. And then I want to say fourthly, the last thing is this that while we live here on this earth, we live in the tension between groaning and glory. We live in the tension between the two. There's some Christians you speak to them and it's all glory. Please don't be one of those Christians. The other Christians you speak to, they're all groaning. Please also don't be one of those. The truth is in the middle, that it's the tension between the two. And while we live on this earth, The reality is we live in the tension between the groaning and the glory. We live with a body that's decaying. Our future is decrepitude. That's very encouraging to say on a rainy day. But the glory is coming. And every now and again, God releases the glory among us. And we are encouraged because he does it again and again. And again, we are looking forward to that great day when the Son of God splits those skies. And sin will be over forever. And all the horribleness and the ugliness associated with sin will be no more because Jesus, the Son of God, will be standing there in all his glory. And we want to say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to lead you in prayer as the worship team comes forward. I want to just tell you that I want to pray for three kinds of people today. First of all, I want to pray for is medical professionals. And I want to thank God for you. And if you're comfortable to do it, and if you're able to do it, if you want to do it, I don't want to embarrass anyone. I'm going to ask you to stand while I pray for you. In a moment, I'll invite you to stand. I want to pray for you. Because you are the servants of Christ. You are on mission with God. You are helping us to cope with groaning. I want to pray for you. Second group of people I want to pray for are those who fall into the category who would long to be healed. And you are groaning. and Maybe you are in a wheelchair. And maybe you have some kind of disability and disease. And I want to pray for you. I want to ask God to be merciful on the basis of the compassion of Jesus Christ to heal some of us. And then thirdly, I want to pray for those who may never have believed in Jesus as Son of God. And every time you hear the gospel, it goes over there, over, over, over. That God will be gracious to you and allow you to have a revelation today. And you see who the Son of God is. Really. So let's bow our heads in prayer. So the medical professionals among us, if you're comfortable to stand, please would you do that as I pray for you. Father, we do thank you that you've raised up men and women who love Jesus. You've given them good intellect. You've given them uh, all sorts of capabilities so they can be instruments of your grace. Thank you, Lord, for their place of appointment, whether it's private practice or a hospital with conditions that are not easy. And I pray that as they go back tomorrow, it would be with renewed vision that they're on mission with the living God, and they're part of his plan to help groaning people to cope with their burdens. Encourage them, Lord. Strengthen them. Sometimes they are criticized by patience and not appreciated as they should. And I pray that you would strengthen them with grace in the inner man and woman. Thank you. You may be seated. And Lord, I pray for those today, in the sound of my voice, whether they're here today, whether it's online, whether in this room, whether during the course of the week, with some kind of disability and disease. And their hearts are crying even as I speak. And I pray for them. That for some of them you would be the God of compassion and knowledge and power that you were to this man about whom we've just read. And that you would grant them healing, Lord. You would grant them healing grace for no other reason than that you are a God of grace. I pray that not so that we may say we've had healings at covenant grace, but so that the name of the Son of God would be made famous. Lord, I pray for any this morning who have heard the gospel time and time again, but they've never had the revelation of who Jesus really is. Be merciful to them today, Lord. Open their blind eyes. Shine light into the dark heart. Where there is still spiritual death, I pray that you would bring spiritual life and repentance from sin and belief in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Be merciful to us, dear Lord. In the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people say...